Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome, delegates all, to episode 11 of the Delegation Game. Last time we dropped some very significant events on you indeed, as President Marshal Ferdinand Foch, having launched a coup for the presidency in France, had his regime confirmed by adoring crowds and the Chamber of Deputies alike in the first week of April 1919. So, he then decided to follow this up with a statement of intent. The 16 points was this statement, and I'm surprised, but happy, to say that these 16 points passed by a single vote this week. This makes everything much easier for me, so a huge thanks to everyone who voted. And if you didn't get the link, you've been added to that list of delegates and should get it next time we send out a vote, which will be probably next week, because there is no vote at the end of this episode. And don't worry, you're going to find out why that's the case soon enough. Before we do that, though, we've got some other issues to get through, such as welcoming the new delegates. Something you should know is that several players swapped their delegates out for new ones in response to the situation. I'm waiting for confirmation from some of them, as well as an academic, a new player, Dr. Steve Cloutier. Hope I'm pronouncing your surname right there, Steve. He has signed up to join us. Crazy, though that may sound. Welcome, Steve, and I look forward to hearing what delegate you would like to play as. Those players that I've assigned delegates to... I've yet to hear back from you, and some other players are taking up double duties now, so expect Edward Benesh and Sean T. O'Kelly to become more active as a result of that, because players that are playing as other delegates have taken up their delegation duties too, so that hopefully I get less mail. Several schemes have also been passed. One of these is a coup which has been launched in Serbia by Crown Prince Alexander, who has established a royal dictatorship and executed Nikola Pesic, the Serb Premier, in response to the disastrous short, sharp war that country suffered. 
Now, as essentially Serbia's absolute monarch, Alexander refuses to recognise the independence of those briefly Yugoslav states, or to accept the recent peace made with Italy. Unless the country is firmly beaten again, or seriously isolated it seems, Serbia is not through causing trouble just yet. Our other scheme is incredibly significant, but have a seat, because this may really, really annoy some people. In many respects, though, it is good for the sake of the progress of this game, and just so you know, this scheme had 14 supporters, so it's not my fault, it's not like I thought of doing it. A successful role in that scheme means, well, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement is no more. It has been abolished as a result of this scheme. Don't forget, it had 14 supporters, so blame those 14 people if you're annoyed. The members of the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, or IFTA, are now folded into the wider Allied Agreements, which is now enshrined in the format that Foch had proposed, that being the Council of Eight and the Minor Council. Those IFTA members, it was said, would receive full compensation when it came time for it. And in this episode, we're going to explain how this abolition of IFTA fits into the actual lore of the timeline that we've essentially created. This development may be well resented by those IFTA members, but there comes a time in every conference when one side has to compromise for the good of the whole, and this is it. If you think about it, with Foch simplifying things, the Italians AWOL, the Serb government overcome by another coup, and the Bolsheviks still posing a potent threat, there has never been a better time for the two sides, and these two sides were always supposed to have just been one side in the Allied conference, by the way. Now they can join together. The only power at a distinct disadvantage in this case will be the Serbs, who will surely now be utterly isolated following Alexander's royal coup. I should also say this. On several occasions in this conference, and several more times in the future, I'm sure, I, as the delegation master, I have to reconcile the public pronouncements of the delegates in play with these schemes or proposals or votes that are passed. I have to decide, in other words, how to square what delegates have declared as their policy with what actually has to happen in this game according to the rules. These difficulties have been overcome by some delegates already, thanks to a convenient death, resignation or retirement here or there, which enabled them to take on a new character. And if anyone is really appalled at IFTA's dissolution, for instance, I would suggest going down that route and maybe swapping your character out for someone else. However, if you want to let the delegation game imitate history, then I would suggest staying on and trying to work for your country from a different perspective. It should go without saying that the balance is very hard to get right, and while I don't want players to feel disgusted and stop playing altogether, I do have to run with the majority here, or at least I have to accept schemes as they come in once the odds gods determine that scheme passed. Again, I should underline that events of the last few weeks have helped streamline what was becoming a frankly ridiculous but obviously enjoyable mess. This way, the Allies are at least no longer split into two camps. The only camps which may exist now are those that refuse to recognise or those that accept President Marshal Ferdinand Foch as President. But again, thanks to the recent vote which was sent out, your delegate will now have to accept it, at least insofar as it now is, well, the law of this conference, just as they helped to force through the unreal accreditation of German delegates a few weeks ago, which led us all to this mess. The way the game works depends on players honouring the results, and for that reason, we can't have players refusing to abide by the decisions, or making chat groups that proclaim a new peace conference will take place in Bermuda. I just made that last point up, but hopefully you catch my drift. If Fosch's 16 points hadn't passed, then we would all have to move on, and those that were only defeated by a small margin would have to accept that result. This is really all a roundabout way of me saying that I hope you'll all be good sports, so we can all enjoy this game together. And a reminder again, if you feel your delegate has now booked themselves into a corner, to use a wrestling term, you can now change into a completely new delegate altogether. We'll see how these things are factored into the game going forward today, so I hope I'll have your attention and patience. Term really has been heating up in my actual job over the last few weeks, in case you forgot I had an actual job, so apologies if I haven't been as active or attentive as I should have been. I must say, though, I have enjoyed role-playing as Ferdinand Foch, and the power has completely gone to my head. Foch has already successfully passed legislation to hand all chocolate buttons over to me, so there's that.
Anyway, before we get carried away, let's begin as I take you all to episode 11, which opens in a scene that is by now familiar indeed to us all. A large room, where a lot of delegates were present, reacting to the news, in this case, that Fosh's 16 points had been successfully passed. A hush came over the room, and the American president rose out of his chair. The chair groaned, and House looked at the worn-looking piece of furniture with barely veiled scorn. The president's second-in-command was feeling sensitive indeed, for Woodrow Wilson was about to make a thunderous announcement. Across the delegations, the news had already begun to leak out. Marshal Ferdinand Foch and his 16 points, communicated the previous week, had been accepted by a narrow margin. To some, this was joyous news. To others, it was akin to disaster. Today, Saturday the 13th of April 1919, was a day of great significance for the conference, now residing in London. What Wilson said next would make or break the conference, and within the President's worn, almost leathery face, the gravity of this moment was clearly captured. It seemed to House that Wilson was attempting to channel some kind of inner force before beginning. House's eyes shifted to the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, who had an equally pained expression on his face. Unless the Prime Minister could paint this situation in a similarly flattering light, his political career could well be over right here and now. Opposite David Lloyd George sat René Massigli, supposedly representing an independent France, as had been espoused by President Raymond Poincaré. Last night, the news had come in that Poincaré had been released from prison, released from house arrest, and was no longer under the surveillance of Foch's regime, and that he had agreed to serve as the Premier of France. He would, in fact, be on his way to the Annabay Hotel soon enough, and when he arrived, how would René Massigli respond? Albert Clavel had already vanished, and if one asked Massigli, he claimed it was the work of the President Marshal. This morning, though, at about 8am, Massigli had received a letter from Clavel announcing that he regretted he would have to resign, and appealing to his friend to forgive him and perhaps do the same. The revelation had caused René Massigli to spiral into a state of complete denial. He was now alone representing free France, the empowered French premier was en route, and only out of courtesy had Massigli been allowed to sit at this top table. It was, the feelings of the moment suggested, the final time René Massigli would sit at this table, and there could be no guarantee that this French minister would go quietly. This unpredictability had made House nervous. Now that Massigli had an audience, he could say whatever he liked and he had nothing to lose. But House was reasonably sure at the same time that Massigli's innate sense of gentlemanly courtesy would compel him to listen to the President without interrupting or making a scene. Massigli maintained that his career and reputation for bravery a fortnight before spoke for itself. He did not need to tarnish that reputation now through rash or boisterous behaviour. He would let the wave of sympathy carry him all the way to the presidential palace in France as the wave swept Foch down. That, at least, had been Massigli's hope, but such hopes appeared more forlorn with every passing day. The longer Foch's regime existed, the more shocks it was able to withstand, the more normalised his presidency was becoming. It certainly helped that the initial fury of his takeover had become distant memory in France, especially among his supporters, who tended to be on the right. With the passage of his 16 points, Foch's popularity would be at an all-time high. Now that he had acquired his own personal veto on the peace treaty, the people of France would never dare to remove him, for he had guaranteed that France would secure peace for itself well into the future. And who could argue against that? House admitted that it was increasingly difficult to argue against Foch. Any mention of his regime came with the caveat of protest, as though everyone still wished to indicate that they did not support the means through which the marshal had come to power. In the last few days, though, these caveats and expressions had become less frequent, and it was becoming apparent that delegates were already preparing for a bright future with this France, and thus engaged in some real politique towards Foch in advance to account for this approach. 
Wilson was standing, hunched over the long top table, flipping the first few pages of his speech. The hush had receded somewhat, and loud whispering among the delegates had resumed. They had all gathered here for a plenary conference in the Anabay Hotel's sumptuous central conference room for the express purpose of proclaiming what had recently been rumoured. In this awkward interim period, while everyone seemed to be waiting for House to speak, but also had their own things to discuss amongst themselves, House was free to have a little look around the room. From where he was seated, his eyes darted around until they located the rumoured flavour of the week, the Poles, who today seemed particularly pleased. Ignacy Paderewski had reportedly been heard playing his more upbeat tunes and had even been seen linked arm-in-arm with the Hungarian countess, Lady Nora Chalk. Apparently, Paderewski's mood had been greatly lifted with the return of Josef Pilsudski. A return which also encouraged Bognan Kudzal to return to regular duties himself. The Polish delegation was more invigorated than ever before, but it wasn't due simply to Pilsudski's return. That grizzled Polish commander had returned himself because of the Franco-Polish Pact, which had been arranged on the previous Monday, the 8th of April. On that day, Pilsudski had been invited for high-level talks in Paris, and that, so the official accounts said, had marked the beginning of the end of the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement. By promising Poland extensive military support against the Bolsheviks and extensive financial assistance in the immediate post-war years, not to mention a defensive alliance, directed above all against Germany but also the Bolsheviks to the east, Pilsudski had been lulled into the President Marshal's orbit. It had been remarkably easy to persuade Pilsudski to abandon IFTA in exchange for these promises. With news of the Polish exit on Wednesday the 10th of April, it was the Italian Premier Vittorio Orlando who next met with Foch in person and absolved himself of any loyalty towards that institution. This time, Foch had been able to persuade Italy to leave in cooperation with Lord Derby, the British ambassador to France, who had acted, some said without authorization, to broker an additional compromise. Britain, Lord Derby said, would recognise Italy's gains in the Balkans and support her against the tumultuous Serbian regime, in exchange for Italy's abandonment of IFTA. With his major gains in Fiume guaranteed, a sphere of influence over the Balkans established, and the Treaty of London more than bettered, Vittorio Orlando was keen to accept. Italy was also promised compensation for her actions in the Balkans, as a thank you from Foch, and her contribution towards the expedition for protecting Russian freedoms, as it was called, would be reduced from 50,000 to 25,000 men. Furthermore, Foch committed to speed up the peace process with Austria, personally, which was of particular concern to the Rome government. With both Poland and Italy removed from IFTA, that institution effectively closed its doors. Even more significant than this development in itself had been the central role of Foch to the negotiations. With these successes coming in such a short space of time, few could argue that Foch's presidency was not a net good for France and also Europe as a whole. This impression, in addition to Foch's increasing mildness in policy, likely helped to persuade those present in London to approve of his 16 points. But even so, the vote had been very close indeed. As Vittorio Orlando had been in Paris, engaging in publicly announced high-level talks which guaranteed the success of his recent foreign policy exploits, the Italian people marched in jubilation in the streets. While the public marched, Orlando took the opportunity to move against his more violent, dangerous opponents. One such individual to be arrested was the poet Gabriel D'Annunzio, who was said to have been planning a coup in Fiume in the event that that city fell to the Yugoslavs. Another was a group of ultranationalists, who Italian police had had their eyes on for some time. A fresh-faced, stubby, loud individual had been arrested in this wide net while giving an inflammatory speech about the powerlessness of Orlando's policies. The police report had been filled out with relative ease, the sentence of life imprisonment passed quickly and quietly with little fanfare, and Orlando was pretty confident that nobody would miss the 36-year-old self-proclaimed Duce of Fascism, Benito Mussolini. 
House mulled these recent events over in his mind. Thanks to the extensive information network which America enjoyed, and the fact that all these emerging states were attempting to get on the president's good side, House found that accurate, up-to-date news wasn't very hard to come by. The American ambassador to France had been invited to the high-level meeting between Foch, Vittorio Orlando, and the British ambassador, and though he had feigned illness to avoid attending, he had sent his aide to take notes. House presided over perhaps the most reliable information network of any figure now at the Annabay Hotel, and this meant that the president was also suitably in the know. The real question was how, in the meantime, that information kept leaking out to other news outlets or swirling around the halls of the Annabay in the form of rumours. Nobody had been meant to know about the dissolution of IFTA, and certainly not about Lord Darby's meeting with Foch and Vittorio Orlando, and yet it was now established fact. Lloyd George was said to be furious, but the wily Welshman was also surely looking for a political opportunity at the same time. Few wanted to back the wrong horse, and thanks to Foch's impressive track record over the last fortnight, the President Marshall no longer seemed like the wrong horse. Foch had, so said his supporters, and even some cautious onlookers, managed to bridge the gap in his foreign policy between the East and West. He had re-established order and pride in France, he had confirmed his country's position in the peace conference, and he had pacified the Balkans and humbled the Germans. Now, it was said, all he looked for was an opportunity to extend the olive branch further to the Allies in London and to heal the unfortunate rift which had recently emerged. It was then that the Bolsheviks could be destroyed and the final peace treaty arranged with the Germans. Foch had communicated regularly through the office of the new Swiss delegate in London, Felix Kalander. Kalander's neutrality and sense of mission had appealed to Foch and Foch's rivals alike, and he had proved the perfect intermediary. Every day, it seemed, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch had expressed his earnest desire to talk with the assembled delegates in London and move towards a concrete peace. As per Kalander's latest recommendation on Thursday the 11th of April, the American president should make a public statement of intent recognising these successes and then indicate a way forward for both the Allies and Foch to move. That had compelled the British, American and Japanese delegates to call for a plenary conference where the 16 points could be voted on. Originally, they had planned to kick this can down the road for some length of time, but the outcome of this vote confirmed Felix Kalander's recommendation. It was time, for the sake of European but also world peace, to accept compromise, to welcome back France and to meet the French halfway. It would be no use, Theodore Roosevelt had told Wilson, if France was permanently excluded. Besides, the Polish traitor and Bolshevik terrorist, Pavel Lobova, had confessed to a great proportion of the atrocities. And President Marshal Foch had apologised for, and promised compensation for, those regrettable crimes which remained. To exclude France was to doom the League of Nations, to prevent a conclusive treaty ending the war ever from being formed, and to ignore the reality of the situation. Theodore Roosevelt had met with Wilson in person every evening over the last week, and it was one meeting in particular, hosted the night before on Friday the 12th of April, that had had the greatest effect. According to the minutes available for the meeting, Roosevelt began by once again appealing to Wilson to see sense, as he had been accompanied in this quest by William Randolph Hearst, who had assured Wilson that his press would easily be able to spin the agreement made with Foch in a positive light. Then Oliver Flanagan had joined the discussion, finding time to reference his experience with Harvard, as was customary, and to question whether France would grant some oil concessions to the United States in the Middle East in exchange for her cooperation. Wilson insisted that the United States was not interested in furthering imperialism in that region. It was then that Bruce Pug had suggested a compromise. If the French would abandon dreams of imperialism in the Middle East and would commit to gradually grant autonomy to her empire across the world, then in Europe, America would serve as her firm friend. It was a noble idea, and Pug noted that the United States would be provided with ideal opportunities for profit from the new states which emerged, particularly in Syria and Arabia, where the region was said to be torn between Navar Sharif's family and the supporters of Hussein bin Ali, self-proclaimed King of the Arabs. Walter Cameron, as was typically the case, 
had provided the voice of moderation among these voices of self-interest. Germany, Cameron said, was greatly disadvantaged by these 16 points and would be threatened permanently by Foch's regime. When Hearst had attempted to say in essence that it served Germany right, Mr. Joseph Zahn had loudly protested, denouncing in particular the separation of Bavaria from Germany and the sponsorship of a disruptive, fractious government in Weimar. Zahn made much out of the fact that the Allies had been virtually silent on the terrible fate of Horten von Hotzendorf, who, upon getting off a train in Berlin, was spotted by a group of enraged citizens, taken before some Freikorps soldiers, and subsequently shot dead on the spot. His body had then been torn to pieces by the mob, who seemed to blame Horten von Hotzendorf for surrendering pieces of Germany over to the Allies in the Western Front Peace Treaty, a treaty which, of course, Horten von Hotzendorf had not even been present to negotiate for. The Allies were so focused on what Foch was doing, Zahn said, that they had forgotten why they were here, and they were here to bring conflict to an end with the German people and to guarantee peace into the future with that country. How could they do such a thing, Zahn asked, when the German people were capable of being driven to such a frenzy? Pug asked Zahn what he wanted then, to which Zahn had replied that since the situation in Germany was so volatile, he would prefer not to accept a treaty which was so punishing to the German people. Yet, Zahn concluded, he recognised that the situation either way was dire, and he felt that the Allies could not ignore the genuine desires of the Bavarians, who seemed keen to represent their independence at the conference in the person of Johann Hoffmann, the Bavarian minister-president. Again pressed for an answer, Zahn sighed and said that he would adhere to the will of the majority. House piped up in this meeting next and asked Wilson whether he was aware of the violence which had caused the death of Horten von Hotzendorf. Wilson said that he had been and that he had heard the violence was being inflamed by the Bolsheviks. House had cautioned the president not to place the Bolsheviks in the position of universal boogeyman of the world or else nothing practical would be done. Wilson then replied that it would only be right to hear what Hoffman had to say about Bavaria before making a decision and he added that while Fosch's 16 points had the potential to exacerbate the Franco-German tensions into the future it was difficult to imagine any treaty solving that relationship. The best hope for the peace of the world, Wilson said, was to incorporate Germany and Bavaria and Austria too into the League of Nations where such disputes could be resolved. Walter Cameron then asked about the viability or indeed the borders of the Bavarian state, and Wilson replied that as far as he understood it, the government in Weimar was not in a position to enforce any decisions owing to a lack of soldiers, and in these circumstances, the free militias in Bavaria, fanned by fears of Bolshevism, had set up checkpoints in the old towns and along the traditional borders of their old kingdom. House added that Bavaria's borders had been established and confirmed within the German Empire, so it was merely a matter of reapplying these conditions to an independent Bavarian state, which was rumoured to be leaning towards a republic. Walter Cameron asked whether the recently exiled King Ludwig III of Bavaria had shown any intentions of returning, or whether a considerable monarchist faction even existed in Bavaria. Bruce Pug then said that a restored Wittelsbach dynasty might grant some legitimacy to a kingdom which had not been independent since before 1871, and Joseph Zahn agreed. Zahn said that he would have to issue a word of protest against the policy proposed by Foch, which would permanently separate the Rhineland from Germany, as had occurred during the Napoleonic Wars. It was then, Zahn took the time to note, that Napoleon had established his Confederation of the Rhine to the detriment of all pan-Germans everywhere. Theodore Roosevelt opined that the situation in Germany was much less clear-cut now and that the Bavarians were resentful towards the Prussians for bringing them into the war, so the Rhinelanders would probably feel similarly. Zahn replied that he felt he had to emphasise the importance of granting Germans the freedom to choose. Though they were defeated enemies, they were at least deserving of that. Wilson indicated that he would make acceptance of the new order in Germany conditional upon Foch's agreement to negotiate on plebiscites in the regions concerned, but above all in the Rhineland, Bavaria and Austria. Roosevelt recommended that the president sweeten the deal by suggesting a freeze in all such plebiscite activities for five years, whereupon in 1924 the Allied powers would be better equipped to effectively assess the situation. In the meantime, Roosevelt added, 
the United States should proclaim its commitment to friendship with France, especially a France ruled by a leader that the people seem to adore. Wilson was apprehensive, but he indicated that all these points would be raised in his speech before the plenary conference the next day. Their meeting on the evening of the 12th of April adjourned at 11.45pm. Fewer than 12 hours later, here the American delegation and its president sat as part of a plenary conference which included every delegate from every country. It was quite a thing, House mused, to have so many critically important statesmen, so many visionaries, so many bloated egos, all in the same room at the same time. How much time had passed, though, as he had been reminiscing? He looked around. Wilson still had not begun his speech, and now he was talking with David Lloyd George. Lloyd George caught his eye, and House rose from his chair, gliding a few paces over to meet him. Lloyd George extended his hand, and House took it. Had Lloyd George forgotten that they had already done this an hour ago? The day seemed to be fraying everyone's nerves. Lloyd George beckoned House to come closer, within whispering distance. As House moved closer, he noted the sound level of the room suddenly reduce. The oldest trick in the book, House noted. In spite of all this talk about tapped phones and bugs, mere eavesdropping was still the most effective method. He also noticed something else. Lloyd George didn't say anything important to him. Instead, he was trying to gauge who was paying attention and who was not. Don't worry, old boy, Lloyd George whispered. We'll soon separate the friends from the foes. In the meantime, you must steady your friend. I will, House replied simply, and Lloyd George winked at him. House couldn't help but marvel at the British Prime Minister as he returned to his seat. Lloyd George was facing down a potential revolt in his delegation, as Arthur Fitzwilliam and Alistair Tancred threatened to go their own way. And yet, somehow, after this brief performance in playful deception, House was convinced once more that if anyone could weather the storm which might soon engulf his delegation, it was that wily Welshman. As he returned to his seat and sank carefully into it, House noted that Wilson had returned as well, and that he had comprised his papers into a perfect, neat pile in front of him. The President always did this just before he began his speech, and indeed, Woodrow Wilson cleared his throat, waited for silence to come over the room, an act of patience which was rewarded in mere seconds. The President of the United States then began his speech. My dear delegates, and my friends, in the last fortnight since the terrible events which rocked the French capital to its core, and bore witness to the forcible ejection of an old regime and the installation of a new one, the peace conference has regrettably stalled. We are assembled here to dwell on the latest developments in this sphere and to work towards a final proper peace which is satisfactory and feasible for all involved. Even as the guns have fallen silent on the Western Front, it is plain that war, conflict and violence have not ceased to be of use to tyrants, to opportunists or to terrorists. We have lost a great many good men in the course of this conference to such criminals, but so too has the world lost such good men, which houses the conference. We speak of several incidents, but first and foremost of the Bolshevik revolt in Russia, an event which has spawned all manner of cruel and insidious ills, a regime led by Lenin which schemes and plots to undermine the core values of human decency. We, the people of the American delegation, and I, as its first citizen, declare that it is the policy and urgent wish of myself and my fellow Americans to bring that horror in Russia to an end. As the events of the last epoch have demonstrated, though, this is not a mission which the United States can accomplish alone. She must engage with her friends, but also with those that many would seek to distance our great nation from. I speak here of France, and I speak plainly friends. Marshal Ferdinand Foch, a war hero of unquestionable quality and distinction, launched what can only be described as an illegal quest to usurp the legitimate authority of President Raymond Poincaré and the premiership of Albert Clavel. Amidst the most scurrilous rumours and terrible crimes committed on the streets of Paris, Marshal Ferdinand Foch declared himself president and arrested his opposition. Many Americans were killed in the crossfire, but that was not all. In the ultimate injustice, the British Prime Minister and French Ministers 
were held at gunpoint in the Quai d'Orsay and by the man who now claims the title of President Marshal for himself. These are the facts, gentlemen, and they are ugly indeed, and ill-becoming of any president of any country. Yet, I would be mistaken and disingenuous to ignore other equally important facts. Europe is currently in pieces, caught between Bolshevism, violence, opportunism, starvation, desperation, and despair. The wounded egos of those statesmen held at gunpoint will heal, but the damage which our current state of indecision might do to Europe could well last forever. After extensive consultation and communication amongst ourselves, we as a body of delegates voted to approve the President Marshall's 16 points by a small margin. These 16 points came following the President Marshall's confirmation as President by the most legitimate and sacred of French constitutional bodies, the Chamber of Deputies. It came, in addition, amidst an outpouring of profound French emotion and joy that their country was now led by a figure who sought their interests and their interests only. The 16 points are a reflection of this innate desire to protect France and shield her from either a bad peace or a resumption of the war. This goal we understand, and we communicate, as we have done so many times before, America's heartfelt identification with the French struggle in that crisis. We feel and mourn the losses with our French brothers, and declare our wish to never see France so victimised or attacked again. We identify with the 16 points, and I, as President of the United States, confirm my acceptance of its key tenets to a certain extent. The United States is willing to recognise the regime of President Marshal Foch and welcome the arrival of French Premier Raymond Poincaré as its representative on the new Council of Eight. I, as President, am keen to negotiate face-to-face with such a distinguished statesman as Premier Poincaré, and I am very eager to move forward with this conference so that our core goal of a lasting peace can be achieved. Motivated by this noble goal, however, I declare my country's acceptance of the 16 points contingent on a few inalienable truths which require a personal guarantee from the President Marshal before these negotiations can go any further. First, Foch must agree to sign a written guarantee that commits him to resign his office once the peace treaty has been signed. Second, the figure for reparations as indicated by President Marshal Ferdinand Foch in his 16 points should not be stated by those 16 points which should be negotiated by a financial commission in London. Third, the newly independent states of Bavaria and the Rhineland must be permitted to choose their destinies through plebiscites, where the participation of all citizens eligible to vote in the vicinity will be entitled to do so without interference. Fourth, all political prisoners, such as remain in jail due to their opposition to President Marshal Ferdinand Foch's regime, must be released. Fifth, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch must confirm the leading French role in the League of Nations. Sixth, and finally, the President Marshal must keep the channels of communication open between London and Paris, with the intention that all of his 16 points may be discussed if further clarification is needed. These are our six red lines which must be fulfilled, but I am content to negotiate on any of the other 16 points as the President Marshal desires. It is vital that the principles of self-determination, fair and just punishment, a commitment to democracy, a commitment to supporting the League of Nations, and a pledge to maintain all channels of communication with all possibilities, receive in their turn the blessing of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch. Such concessions for our part will be necessary as an instrument of good faith to the President Marshal, as we have shown good faith by accepting his 16 points as they currently stand. If we are to move negotiations forward, though, there must be some give and take. As proud and powerful nations, we will not be dictated to, though. We must be negotiated with. In the event that Foch does not accept these points, France will be excluded from the peace process, however painful this may be for us all. If President Marshal Ferdinand Foch seeks to accommodate her allied friends, however, then she will find a receptive and willing audience in London. Speaking from a personal point of view, I must admit that I was inherently sceptical, and moreover, hostile, to the notion that France needed the leadership of the President Marshal. However, under these circumstances, I am happy to be wrong. In the last week in particular, 
France has spearheaded extensive peacemaking initiatives with the members of the late Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, with the result that the unfortunate and destructive rift between East and West has finally been healed, insofar as no great organisation of disruption now stands in the way of a final resolution. It is my understanding that President Marshal Foch has negotiated extensive peace arrangements with the Polish and Italian parties, to the extent that both have emerged satisfied with their new position and confident of resolution in their respective trouble spots and in the peace conference here. This is fortunate news indeed, and bodes well for the future of our relations. We are content to bless these initiatives and to offer our warm friendship to the Italian and Polish delegates, who may have believed that, due to their former membership in that difficult intermarium free trade agreement, we would have borne some resentment towards them. We bear no such ill will, only a desire to move past these difficulties and to forge a peace with their cooperation. It is a good thing that the rift between East and West has been resolved, and it is perhaps a good thing also that the underlying paralysis of the conference has been soothed, because we do not face down one another, but enemies near and far away. The Bolsheviks have already demonstrated their innate cruelty and capacity for scheming and corrupting others, seen above all in their recent capture and confession of Mr. Pavel Lobova. Pavel Lobova will not be the end of the danger, I am afraid. Further to the east, under the leadership of the sniping Lenin, Russia is in ruins, as Europe was not too long ago, and its people cry out for a rescue. Thanks to President Marshal Ferdinand Foch's initiatives, it is my belief that collectively we can serve as that rescue. The President Marshal has already indicated the extensive military contribution he intends to make to the cause of Russian freedoms, thanks in large part to the uproar which Bolshevism has caused in that country following the murder of the late, great Georges Clemenceau. We must stand united against these threats, and as part of the Allied peacemaking initiatives, should prepare for action with the Council for Russian Freedoms, proposed in President Marshal Ferdinand Foch's 16 points. In addition, we should look closer to home to heal trouble spots such as in Serbia, where a coup of far more severe and less careful kind has been conducted by the Crown Prince Alexander. His Grace has seen fit to overall the Serbian government and establish a royal dictatorship, a government not seen since the terrible era of absolutism which this equally terrible war brought to an end. Serbia has no friend now, where once she had all of Europe marching to war in her name. She has alienated her friends and counts among her enemies those that had once died attempting to rescue her. This is significant and it demonstrates the desperate state that country is in. We refuse to recognise either that rotten regime or the Crown Prince's brutal policies. We denounce the Yugoslav idea as incompatible with the principle of self-determination, and we urge all Balkan peoples to oppose the Serbian tyranny. To the Serbian people, we are not your enemy. Your enemy is that figure who leads you selfishly and recklessly into war, without a thought for the consequences. Our conscience is clear in the matter, and we stand with Italy as well as the independent Balkan states. In the event that Italy cannot defeat the menace alone, I commit this country to a policy of hostility towards Serbia. In the event that Serbia is defeated, however, Italy will be compensated for all losses suffered in the reparations which the rapacious Serbian monarchy will owe. I am wary of talking too long, dear friends, but I must conclude on an issue which has brought us here in the first place, the peace with Germany. I would like to confirm, as per these 16 points, a new and more sensible streamlined diplomatic structure in London, consisting of a council of eight, which will have final decisions on policy, and a minor council, consisting of all powers outside the council of eight. This arrangement is the conference equivalent of a bicameral parliamentary system, where the council of eight serves as the House of Commons in this respect, and we powers of the United States, Great Britain, Japan, and, it is our earnest hope, Soon, France will represent the humble Members of Parliament, or MPs, of this great peacemaking endeavour. This arrangement will work towards the conclusion of a proper peace with Germany, as the Council of Russian Freedoms works towards the goal of formulating an intelligent and informed interventionist policy in Russia, and, finally, as the Financial Commission resolves our reparations decisions. It is the desire of all peace-loving individuals in this room not to let our differences fester and boil over, but to acknowledge them, to discuss them, 
and ultimately to resolve them. With that in mind, and safe in the knowledge that peace is always the noblest of objectives, I commend this policy of cooperation and friendship with President Marshal Ferdinand Foch to the delegates assembled, and I thank them for their attention and patience. Gentlemen, let us remember our duty and renew today our commitment to peace, starting today, starting right now. Thank you. It had been quite the speech, but Paul von Leto Vorbeck felt more concerned than Boyd. Several individuals present evidently felt differently, standing and cheering in the course of their rapturous applause. From where he sat, von Leto Vorbeck could make out House mouthing, well done, in his president's ear. The last few weeks had done wonders for their friendship, which had been driven onto the rocks at an early stage before. Von Leto Vorbeck found that Germany, which had once been in such an advantageous position, was now laid low with discrimination. They treat us as though we were Polish, Karl Renner, the Austrian Chancellor, had exclaimed a day or two before, and the comparison was fair. Previously, the Poles had been the pariahs of the peace conference, the Germans the unlikely empowered and attended delegates. Now it seemed all of that was about to change, and with a vengeance. Germany would not have seats on any of these commissions which would determine her future, and her future was already in jeopardy with the apparent secession of Bavaria from Berlin's orbit. Or should that be Weimar's orbit? Von Leto Vorbeck wasn't quite sure, but he was sure that Friedrich Ebert, the embattled president of what remained of Germany, was doing his best. He hadn't heard from him in a week, and neither had Karl Renner heard from Vienna. It seemed both capitals had gone dark, or at least had relented from providing advice or seeking information when the central powers were now so ostracised and constrained in their freedom of action. Von Leto Vorbeck sighed and leaned back in his chair. Observer status, he repeated to himself with added scorn. What did that even mean? Nothing, that was what it meant. Germany was being turned into a laughing stock, like the generous Dingelbursch of the continent, and Prussia was taking the blame for everything. How he longed to return to his distant estate with its rugged beauty and understated wealth, its plentiful pantry and rolling forests. No self-righteous American president could find him there, nor could any needy Austrian, whiny Alsatian or flatulent Belgian. The conference had evidently broken for a moment after Wilson's speech, and the delegates were milling around. From his position far in the back of the room, well away from anywhere which might be construed as suggesting that he had some kind of important role to play, von Leto Vorbeck could have sworn he spotted the Romanian premier Yuan Bratianu, shaking the hand of Polly Mons, a cloud of cigarette smoke hovering above him. Could it really be? Had that travelling circus of a human being really been invited here? If Yuan Bratianu was here, and if he was empowered to speak for Romania, then a clash with Lady Nora Chok of Hungary was imminent. The Countess had handed him a declaration earlier in the week upon learning of the collapse of Ifta. It was sad and resigned in tone, but a quarrel over Transylvania would certainly awaken that beast within her again. Von Leto Vorbeck confessed to himself that out of everything that had happened in the conference so far, and out of all the dire scenes he still had to face, he couldn't help but look forward to that moment of confrontation between Yuan Bratianu and Lady Nora Chalk. He only hoped he was there when the eruption took place. It was a pleasant thing to breathe in the fresh air. That central conference room was stuffy indeed. But while Lloyd George was optimistic about the benefits for his lungs, he did not imagine he would get much peace standing out here, as the wind blew loudly through the towering oak trees which lined the nearby River Thames and placed half of the Annabay Hotel in the shade. That was because, after so many days of avoiding him, Sir Alistair Tancred was walking right towards the Prime Minister and there was nowhere for Lloyd George to go. He had had enough of running now, and besides, there was nothing Tancred or his friend Fitzwilliam could do at this stage. The vote had been taken, and it had been passed. Somehow, it had passed. Lloyd George had been confident it would not, and could not, pass. He worried that, as usual, his peers were not reading the fine print. Point 15, in particular, 
which reserved the right of President Marshal Foch to veto the entire peace proposal. What was that about? Was the Marshal crazy? Lloyd George had long theorised since the uproar began that Foch never intended the 16 points to gain approval, and he had only issued them so that the denial would whip French citizens into a frenzy, whereupon Foch would gain additional powers. A mere president, or president marshal, whatever he wanted to call himself, was surely too modest a title for someone like Foch, the saviour of the French army. Lloyd George had seen Foch at his best, but at his worst, only Clemenceau had been a match for him, and the only way to deal with him had been through direct, blunt confrontation with the full force of the political establishment behind you. Now, though, the Allies had none of these things. All they had were promises from Foch that he would step down, and counter-proposals from Woodrow Wilson, which would put a check on the outrage. But that was all. How had the damned thing passed? Too late for that now. Tancred was merely a few steps away. As usual, Tancred made a great show of coming across the Prime Minister by chance, as though he hadn't picked him out from the other side of the courtyard and dashed over as quickly as he could without blowing his cover. Prime Minister, Tancred exclaimed, taking Lloyd George's hand in his own. It is good to see you, Tancred, Lloyd George said, shaking Tancred's hand as firmly as he could. This was a standoff, and it was one which, deep down, neither man wanted to endure. Lloyd George didn't have the stomach to fight for something he didn't believe in, and he had read Tancred's statement, released the previous week, and... He had agreed with every word. It was because of statements like those that he had ensured Tancred come with him in the first place to Paris, and now to London. And now Lloyd George would have to stand against this man? For what? For this sham of democracy? If I could just... Tancred began before Lloyd George interjected. Let's be honest, Alistair. It's complete poppycock. The whole thing is off the wall. Tancred's expression changed from one of severity to one of surprise. Lloyd George reprimanded him. Oh, come off it, Alistair. You don't think I would have voted for something like that, do you? The man held me at gunpoint, for God's sake, and you imagine I would vote for one of his proposals? Of course I didn't, but the eyes had it, and now we will have to find a workaround. It took Tancred only a few seconds to adjust to the new situation. What workaround is there to find, Prime Minister? Tancred began. It is Britain alone against this thing. There is hope, Alistair, Lloyd George confirmed. Wilson's approach cannot be ignored by Foch if he wants the one thing only we can give him, legitimacy. I hear he's being counselled by moderates who are worried that he really will set up a dictatorship. I hear that Poincaré has been empowered as Premier and is on his way here for the express purpose of restoring some of France's democratic credentials. Meaning what exactly, Prime Minister? Tancred asked. Meaning, Lloyd George said, his eyes widening, that his regime isn't as ironclad as he tries to make out. Listen, he'll have to give way on something, and he'll have to listen to President Wilson and make some concessions. Once he does, the floodgates will open. That's a bit of a risk, Prime Minister, Tancred said. Suppose he gives way on nothing. Suppose he doubles down on his policy. Forgive me, but... President Wilson's speech could be interpreted as a stern warning or a vague collection of words which Foch will interpret as he pleases. The real question is, what do we do to force the Marshal back to the conference and ensure France partakes in this treaty? What we do, Lloyd George replied, is we wait for Wilson's approach to do its work and then we act in the name of the whole delegation against Article 15. Tancred took a step back. His expression had changed once again. Prime Minister, there's an awful lot more wrong with the 16 points than just Article 15. Foch is deranged to think we can accept it all. We have accepted far worse in the past, Alistair, Lloyd George replied, before beginning a long and apparently off-the-cuff speech. Remember, Alistair, we only have to accept it nominally. Between now and the creation of a final peace treaty, anything can happen. Did we think when signing the Treaty of London we would be partitioning Africa with the Italians? Did we imagine that with France we would share the Middle East? Treaties are merely a guide, and in my experience it doesn't matter so much about whether you follow their instructions, but how obviously you ignore them. 
So I urge you to hold your tongue for now and see what Fosh's office produces. Already he had pacified Ifta and he plans to destroy Bolshevism. I say let him at that with minimal involvement from our side. There could well be benefits for us and the Empire as a whole. And then when Fosh weakens, as inevitably he will, then we act and we reduce his 16 points to zero. At this very moment, though, Article 15 is the most sensitive, as it subverts Britain to the will of France, and that goes against the principles of national honour, which have consumed so many lives already. I have already submitted a request to the Attorney General for advice on whether Foch is breaking international law with that demand, but I suspect that by demanding all other nations grant him the chance to assent to the final peace treaty before it passes, we will not be the only ones to dissent to Article 15. Those that approved of the 16 points did so, I believe, in a fit of sympathy and enthusiasm, as a strong man emerged to seize the moment. In the aftermath, I believe with some help, we can confront Article 15. The first step is to get Wilson on side, and to support his current overtures to the President Marshall. The Swiss man is the best route for this. Say, Alistair, have you met Mr. Kalender yet? I think you two will get along famously. Sir Alistair Tankred was somewhat swept up in the charm. Not only did he now have a plan from the Prime Minister, he also had a promise that this was only temporary, that it was not as binding as may have been feared, that the worst elements of the 16 points were constantly being reviewed and tweaked by dedicated British officials, and that the most defensive, that which granted Foch the chance to veto any potential peace treaty which was enshrined in Article 15, this would be undermined in the meantime. Lloyd George, as he was careful to do when healing a rift between himself and someone else, made sure the other man felt useful, so he had given Tankred a mission. He would meet face-to-face with the new Swiss peacemaker everyone in the Annabay Hotel was talking about, and he would find out from Mr. Felix Kalender everything that there was to know about Foch, his regime, his peacemaking objectives, his gravest fears, his negotiating style, and just how red the President Marshal's Red lines truly were. Tancred couldn't be certain, but he felt as though his Prime Minister might be grooming him for something incredibly significant. Could this Prime Minister, this Master of Men, be planning to send a delegation to the President Marshal? If he was, then Tancred wanted to be sure he was prepared. He would squeeze every last drop of information out of the Swiss man if it was the last thing he ever did. And that, dear delegates, is the end of the episode. Here we've seen an awful lot go down. In particular, we've unwrapped the fallout of accepting Foch's 16 points and explained here why they were accepted, mostly because of IFTA's collapse, even while there remained a body of opinion determined to reverse the President Marshall's coup. Raymond Poincaré was en route to London and would soon fulfil the Council of Eight as imagined by Foch. Then, one could hope, the delegates from all walks of life would turn their attentions away from France and towards Germany and the Bolsheviks. Both were issues in need of a solution, and Foch's France was an integral part of both solutions. The significant triumph of Foch was of course his successful manipulation of the different pieces of the IFTA puzzle, with the result that the whole structure of IFTA was torn down. Remember, blame the schemers, not me, and remember, remember, if you find yourself among a group of peeved delegates right now, that your mission is not to achieve some fantastical victory for yourself or your country, but to achieve a lasting peace. Foch's joining of IFTA, therefore, makes sense in light of all that has happened, and from these policies, it's hopefully clearer what he wants is peace and cooperation among the Allies, but also punishment for Germany and destruction for the Bolsheviks. This week, I won't be asking you to vote on anything, but I will say that as we're entering the delegation game equivalent of the final stretch in the conference, The big three are now off-limits. No assassination schemes, in other words, will be accepted for Woodrow Wilson, Lloyd George, or now, President Marshal Ferdinand Foch. In every other area, though, go nuts. Remember that it was scheming which forced Foch into power and made the dissolution of IFTA possible. So if you're feeling powerless and voiceless, then get to scheming to turn it around. To those working for a final piece we can all agree on, for a strategy which would prevent Bolshevism setting down more routes in Russia. Thank you for your cooperation, and for remembering why you signed up to play the delegation game. 
We will, in three months on the 6th of July, be releasing our final installment on the Delegation game. So whatever you guys have constructed by then will mean the prosperity or final catastrophe for this alternative world. The future of this universe is very much in your hands, so play sensibly. Until next time, my name is Zach. I've been your Delegation Master. Thanks for listening and for playing, dear delegates. And I will be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 